You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. We've been doing a series, uh, An Upside-Down Christmas. And what an upside-down Christmas is about, it's about the original story of Christmas. What do we mean when we talk about Christmas? Christmas refers to Jesus' birth into the world. And if you know the story, we'll talk about a portion of it this morning, but Jesus' birth into the world happens in a very specific way. He, he's born as a baby to a young mother who's not married, who herself is relatively poor and obscure. And it, his, the circumstances of his birth include danger, Uh, it, become, it, it ends in him becoming a refugee and his parents having to travel uh, very quickly. And it's this real story, this real-life story about a, a people that really existed in the Middle East over 2,000 years ago in, in difficult circumstances. But the way that we often think about Christmas is not primarily like that in our culture, but it's, it's as if we've taken that radical story that we don't really know what to do with and turned it back upside down turned it back over again so that we can talk about the things that we enjoy, like consumerism and comfort and, and, and maybe just having a good time. It's not all bad, but we've made Christmas into, into something totally different. So the, the purpose of this, in most simply, is just to turn the, the idea of Christmas back upside down for us to get the real original meaning, but also that the things that Christmas is made of, really, in this story, hope, peace, joy, and love, that these would be gifts that we would, that we would receive from God in this season. And the season is so much about gift giving and things like that, but we want to focus this to say, what are these, these really intangible gifts that God has that he wants to give people all the time, not just this time of year, but these things that we, we talk about and we gloss over, the idea of hope, the idea of peace, the idea of joy, the idea of love, they're kind of, they're hard to grasp. But these things are real, and God wants to give them to us. He wants our lives to be lived out of this. He wants you to experience real peace. We talked about that last week. That you would really feel peace. You would go from a place of feeling anxiety to peace. The world would go from a place where it's at war, trapped in poverty, to a place where it's at rest and at peace. Today, joy. God really desires that we would have this thing called joy, that we would know if we have it or if we don't. So what I began saying earlier, joy is a gift that God gives us when we're in a relationship with him that's honest and vulnerable and open through Jesus. And when we are in this relationship, we get access to this thing called joy. So the thing is then, if we don't experience joy, if we don't feel like we experience it much or we don't really know, then we might not be experiencing Christianity as it really is. And this is the thing that I think is, is hard to wrestle with, is when you read the New Testament, the, the early Christians understood that to follow Jesus was to have this thing called joy. It doesn't mean that life is perfect. We'll talk about that. It doesn't mean that it's actually not super <coughs> difficult. But when we don't have access to this thing called joy, when we don't feel it, we're experiencing something different than Christianity is, than it was made to be. So we'll talk more about joy, but I want to just jump into the actual story here. Okay, so in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I'll just stop as we go, so please don't keep reading. 
the, the background, the context of the story is that Jesus and his family, or Mary and Joseph, uh, are living, they're, 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 they're Jews living in the territory of Israel, but Israel has been overtaken by the Roman Empire. And so, again, we can read the story separated from all these details, but it's important to know what they're going through. The way empires work is that, uh, you know, Rome is very, is very strong and they move into the territory of Israel and they take it over by force. And, and an empire would do one of like three things, maybe. They would come in and they would just kill everybody. Okay? They want to exert their strength and their force. So one option is just, just kill everybody, take care of everything. The second is that they take everybody and they kind of exile them. Like, we're going to take your land, so if we're not going to kill you, we're going to place you somewhere else. Okay? You see this happening in the world today still, right? The third option, though, and this is what Rome did, and they did kill people often, but the main thing they did, their strategy, was to move into a territory and bring what they called peace, which is really an ironic kind of peace. What they believed is if they had conquered the whole world, then nobody would fight with each other, because they would have already won, and then that would bring peace. Okay? So it made sense to them. It just didn't make sense to the people that they conquered. But the way that they controlled people was to tax them. Okay, so in all the stories that we did through the fall about a quiet revolution of love, often there were tax collectors. Remember all that stuff? Well, tax was the way that they controlled people. So they would say, we're bringing you peace, and you can, you can live where you live. You can keep your job. We won't bother you. All we ask is that you pay quite a bit of tax. Okay? And so the way that they would do that is that they would, they would have... Um, they would ask people to register. This is like they're asking them to complete a census. And so they would say, everybody go back to the town that you're from, the town of your birth, and register. Who are you? How old are you? What do you do? What are your family members? And the purpose of that was to make sure that they're collecting the tax that they should be. Right? So you understand that the story takes place in this kind of oppression, where they're being forced to travel because of the fact that they're living in an occupied land. Okay? So Caesar Augustus, Required that all the world, I love that too, they believe all the world, the whole world, it wasn't actually the whole world, but their whole world, should be registered. This was the first time, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to, to Judas, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, so they were engaged, who was with child, which means pregnant. And while they were there, the, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, that's Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I don't want to talk about this much because it's kind of incidental right now to the story, but th- these things that we think about often and we pass through them that... That, first of all, David is, comes from a royal family. Okay? He's of the lineage of David. This means something. It, it means that uh, he's, he's to be respected. You know, he comes from, that's, it's all about where you come from. It's all about who your family is in those days. And so David comes from this place, which makes it all the more kind of awkward that Mary is pregnant and they're not married. Okay? So it's just the story is a messy story. They're traveling, and they come to this place. It says that Jesus is born. They wrap him in swaddling clothes. What this means is it's something that's still practiced in places in the Middle East and Palestine actually today, in which they will wrap the child in this cloth when it's born. So it's just it's of the culture that he's born in. And he's laid in a manger. Now, this is also just incidental to the story, but it's actually believed today that it's not so much Jesus is sitting out, like laying outside with animals around, but in this day, what it means is he's in a peasant's house. 
In the peasant house in this region, in part of the house, there's what's called a manger, and it's a, it's a part dug out from the floor uh, where they would put feed and things for the animals. Because if you're a peasant, and you're quite poor, and you own a few animals, you don't want to keep the animals outside because they can be stolen. It's your property. It's what you own. And so there's a part of the house in many of these simple houses where the animals would come in, and then there's basically a wall and some feeding troughs and a main room where the whole family eats and sleeps and cooks. And so Jesus, and, and in some of these houses, there is what's called a guest room or a guest area. And, and, the, and the word for this, in, sounds when you say it like they're, they're, they're at a hostel or a hotel, which those things do exist. But the word for that is not the one that's used, and it's probably not that. First of all, if you find somebody that's pregnant having a baby, you're probably going to do whatever you can to let them in. And if they know them, which they know the communities are not very big, they probably know them. David is a well-respected person. There's every reason that they would give you a place inside. So just to give some clarity to the story, and it's still quite radical, what's probably happening, although no one can be sure, is that they have come to a house, a peasant house, to stay, looking for somewhere, but the, the, the room for, for, for uh, visitors is full of people. And so they say, fine, like, lay the baby literally in the feeding trough here. Sleep in the room with us, but lay the baby in the manger, which is where the animals would normally eat. What's, what's amazing and radical about that is not just that Jesus is cast out into, into some stable somewhere, but that God is born and placed inside the home of a peasant, inside of a small peasant house in the midst of an occupied country. And God could choose any way. The story is that Jesus is, is God come in the flesh. God could choose any way to do that, and he specifically dreams up this idea of a peasant house in a place like this for God to come and be born. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Shepherds are, again, poor peasant people. They're people that had not a lot of options to do other things. They were day laborers and even kind of lower. They were the people to like go out into the fields be gone for a long time and just keep track of sheep and make sure that wolves don't get them, make sure they're protected. Often they weren't even necessarily the owners of the sheep. They were just caretakers. They were very simple people. So who does God decide, an angel of all things, to appear to somebody to let the world know that God has just come as he chooses some shepherds in a field? The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. I want you to just imagine this actually happened for people who have trouble believing these things. Imagine it happened. They're in the field. I don't know exactly what that's like, but it's super intense. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, for to you, this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah, the King. That's what the words mean. So the shepherds are there, they're Jewish people. They believe in the story that, sorry, I've been sick, so uh, <coughs> my voice is not the best. They believe in the story that God is going to come and save them. Now God appears to them in a field and says, and I love this, don't be afraid, because this would freak you out if this happened, okay? Don't be scared, because actually why we're coming is not to hurt you, not to harm you. We have good news of great joy that will be for all people. The, the word good news, this thing, this is what we talk about all the time about good news. It's the same word. This is where the idea comes from. 
So Jesus' birth is about what? What is Christmas is about? It's an announcement, and a proclamation, a story that's good news. It's a positive message about joy, and it's for everyone everywhere. And so I think as just as, this is a side note, as a church is what we're about at Jubilee is about this, primarily. This is what leads to holistic transformation in the world, is that there's a message that God has given people that's about joy. That's what we're talking about today. Of all things he could say, of all things he could pick to describe it, he says, I've got good news for you, and it's about joy, and it's for everyone everywhere. And just think about that today, too, as we keep going, is that it's for everybody everywhere. I mean, the person that you think would want nothing to do with it, it's for the person. God, from the heart of God, it's for that person. It's for the people that I don't think are interested or don't care. And it's, and it's even, and the story, I think, kind of says this, it's for the people who no one else will go to. It's for the people who no one else will think of, will go to, will tell good news to, will care for, will think about. The people that churches will ignore and not think about. The story is that God goes to people that are ignored, that are not important that are not part of the church world, if we could use that word. And even this idea that it's, he appears to the shepherds. No one else knows yet, right? Besides Mary and Joseph and maybe some of their family members, nobody understands what's happening with Jesus and with Mary giving birth, except for a few random shepherds in a field somewhere. So they have, if we think about like who knows about God, I don't know who, hopefully it's not just me, but who you think you go to to listen about about God, or who has authority to speak about God. I mean, think about this. In this day, who now at this moment has authority to talk about what God is like and what God is up to? It's Mary, a very young, talking teenage girl who's not married, who had the faith and courage to believe God, even though it was going to be pretty tough for her. Joseph, who's a confused, pretty silent guy that doesn't probably know what to do. A few shepherds in a field who say, God appeared to us. And we know what he's doing. So God does not appear to theologians, to pastors, to holy people. He appears to people that would be counted out. And that's who God wants to reveal himself to. And that's who he wants to speak for him, is people like that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Messiah, a King. This is who Jesus is for us. He's... he's, a Messiah. He's a promised one that will come, will take us back to God. He's a savior. He will save us from everything we need to be saved from. He's a king. He will replace me as the king of my life and do a much, much better job and a much better job in the world. It just ends here, or we're going to focus in on this part, I guess. Maybe I'll just read you the last little part I don't have up there. And this will be a sign for you, he says to the 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 people, the shepherds. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. I did read that, didn't I? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's what the shepherds are, are experiencing, they say, in the field. By the way, a synonym for joy is jubilation. Which is funny, because jubilation comes from the word jubilee. So just so you know, wrapped up in our name, in everything we're about, is this idea that it's good news filled with this thing called joy that we should experience. So what is joy? What is it really? Man, I never have enough time. Joy comes from the Greek word kera. 
Okay, and the word kara comes from the Greek word charis. Some of you might know a charis. Joy comes from the Greek word kara, and kara comes from this Greek word charis. So when they say good news of great joy, they're saying good news filled with kara. And kara is very closely related to this idea called charis. And so joy comes from charis. Charis means grace. So joy literally comes from grace. Right, so this is what they hear when they hear these words, right? It's be like if joy and grace sounded the same to you, which they don't. But joy comes from grace. So I think to understand what joy means, we should look at what does grace mean? Grace is one of the main ideas of the New Testament, of what Jesus is about, of what good news means. And grace can be described different ways. But in my own words, grace, grace is God's, desire, deep desire to have favor upon you, to come near to you, to to be close to you, not because of anything that you have or do. So the idea of sin or of trying to do something to be good or anything like that. Grace is this radical idea that God in his own character so badly wants to come near to people and bring them near to him. In, uh, In the U.S., on the Maybe you've heard about this recently. On the U.S. border with Mexico, it's a very, it's a very tumultuous place where, in the American side, for some politicians and people, they're very intent on closing the border and not letting anybody come in, at least illegally. On the Mexican side, there has, at many times and to this day, been a desire to do things like uh, come either through the, the river there or to be trafficked across by somebody. To, to be in search for basic work, like, like picking fruit in fields or things like that. And so this is, a, this is a thing that happens often with peasant-like people, like in the stories we're reading. And in, in Mexican culture, and this is just to explain the idea of grace a very different way, probably. If I'm, a, if I'm a Mexican peasant, let's say, and I'm looking to get across the border, which is quite dangerous, I might hire, with the little money I have, somebody to take me across the border, somebody that knows the way. And they call these people coyotes or coyotes, okay? And these people are people that know the way, they've done this many times, and they're, they're basically trafficking people across the border, right? But they trust in, the, the, the job of the coyote is to take them and to smuggle them without anyone seeing into this new place, right? From Mexico to the U.S., from where life is hard to the promised land, okay? Where there's work. This is the idea of grace, is that, in the, in the story of the Bible, in where we're at with God, we are, we are separated from God, right? I'm over here, and there's no way I can get over there across the border. There's a huge wall, okay, in the kingdom of God that separates me from this new world. And there's nothing I can do. On my own, I will never be able to get papers into that place. I will never be accepted. There's nothing. It's called sin. There's nothing I can do to have a relationship with God. Jesus is the coyote. Jesus takes me. And he smuggles me across into the kingdom of God, a place where I should not be. I should have never been here. I still should not be here. I should not have a relationship with God. Except, it's like I have a passport now that someone just gave me. And so this is the idea of grace. Is Grace is this desire for some reason that God has, that God, you know, the leader of the country, has brought Jesus, the coyote, to take me and smuggle me across so that the authorities don't know. And give me a new life and a new place and a new kingdom. So grace, so joy is connected with that idea of grace. That I, when I say I've been given grace, it means that God is, 
It's almost as if he's overlooked. He's dealt with it with Jesus, the life of Jesus and on the cross. This is Jesus making a way for me to come across, building a tunnel for me to come over to the other side. So for, for, for joy to mean grace, it means that when, when I experience grace, when I find grace, I immediately find this thing called joy. When I find grace, when I receive grace, I get access to this huge thing called joy. Grace is God freely extending himself, his favor, reaching across, inclining himself to people. Because he has disposed himself, he desires in himself to bless us, to have a relationship with us. The result of God's undeserved favor or grace is this gift called joy, which is of a different place. Joy comes from God. We talk about joy in the world and stuff, but in the Bible, the idea of joy is that it's something that lives inside of God himself. It's something that you only get from God. And it's not dependent on any circumstance in life. This is where joy gets a bit crazy. Psalm 16.11, You have made known to me the path of life. And in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know if this is the way you've thought about God, or I know it's not how many people think about God, but this is the Bible's understanding of God. Why would I ha- want to have a relationship with God? Well, it's because I believe that in the presence of God, being with him, there is fullness of joy. There is, there is pleasures at your right hand, meaning, meaning right next to you there. There is pleasure forever. This is what having a relationship with God is, is like, supposedly. We were actually made for joy. This is a quote by N.T. Wright. We were made for joy, though we were made for joy, we settle for pleasure. I know it's confusing because psalm, the Psalms just talk about pleasure. But what he's saying is, we were made for this thing called joy, but because we don't find it in God, we go looking for it in anything we can find. There's a quote, this is by somebody who's not a Christian. The pursuit of joy, I would even hypothesize, is what moves us, saying this is what drives people. Again, not a Christian. For why else would we allow ourselves to fall in love knowing full well that more than likely there is a horrible breakup at the end, that the person you love most may wind up being a perfect stranger. Who would take this risk if not promised those moments of unequal joy found only in mutual love? Who on earth would climb Mount Everest, expose oneself to ungodly windshield, potentially lose a limb to frostbite, or even fall off a cliff, if it weren't for that moment of joy at the summit? At any moment, we could reach for immediate pleasures, sex, drugs, or donuts. Those are good options. But human history shows that we voluntarily suffer and endure because we know that the light at the end of the tunnel possesses a pleasure of a different species, fantastic enough to justify all the suffering that came before it. It's funny because for someone that's not a Christian, you can see the image of God in the guy because this sounds a lot like what Paul and other people in the Bible talk about and what their lives look like. So I, find, I personally find joy complicated because to me, uh, it's, it's not something you can control. You know, joy is, is in some ways an emotion, meaning it's something that you feel inside. Okay? Those things are not easily controlled or contrived, and it's really hard to fake joy. When you fake joy, people kind of know you, you fake. You know? um, to 
Joy is an emotion that's produced when we trust Jesus and we stop trusting in ourselves. It's an experience that happens inside of you. It's an overwhelming, and this is you trying to describe at the table, it's an overwhelming source of life. It's a feeling of when joy happens, often other things become really small. The problems in life, the things, they, they kind of shrink. They might be there, but they shrink, and you're just overwhelmed with this kind of, I'm trying not to use the words I told you not to use, this kind of life. This is the way I describe it for myself. This kind of bursting of life that everything is brighter. Everything is, 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 is amazing. And it's, it's, this, it's this thing of, and it makes sense, because if you're experiencing what the Bible says joy is, you're experiencing the life of God himself lived out inside of you. And you're experiencing, you know, when Jesus says, I came to give you life, and I came to give it to you abundantly. Abundant life. It's very closely related with the idea of joy again. That I came to give you this experience of life that would be overflowing. I mean, heaven, the kingdom of God, a place where there will be, you know, a banquet and a party. And this is how God always is. It's not just later, it's here. It's just that we're cut off from that experience often. And so again, like I said at the beginning, if we don't experience joy, I think we should think in that moment, I'm not experiencing Christianity. And it's not about perfection. It's just knowing that there isn't a Christianity that is not joy. So, what, so if, we're, if we're on the, the search to say, you know, I want to have, if you want to make it really practical, have a relationship with God, become very vulnerable and honest with Him, be willing to surrender and let go of everything else in life, come near to Him in His presence. Apparently, there's joy there. But what kills it then? If it was that easy, what kills joy? If you remember the story in Matthew, Jesus is explaining how the kingdom works. Even in places like this, what's happening is that people say words about the good news about Jesus, and it's like seeds scattering on the ground. And for some people, the seed comes into their life, and it kind of very quickly, I won't read the whole thing, but it very quickly kind of dies out. Meaning, I heard the good news, but it's not really sticking. And there's this one example here where he says, the seed falling among thorns, so some of the seed gets thrown, and let's say that's me. I have thorns in my life. It refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful. You think about joy like that. God wants to give us joy. And we have it for a moment. But then what happens is the thorns of life, the worries of life. This is very it's easy to relate to, at least for me. The worries of life choke it out. The deceitfulness of wealth. This is interesting. It's the one thing he chooses. Worries of life and the, the pursuit as a God of wealth, the controlling of wealth choke out, and you think about that, if my life is joy, and this is what I'm saying, your life should be about pursuing joy. You pursue joy, but then you get caught off guard with the worries of life or by pursuing wealth. And then it, the seed gets choked of life and dies. So pursue God, but do not pursue the worries of life. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not pursue the worries of life. Give up the worries of life. Give up the pursuit of wealth, and you'll be given a gift that's much better than either of those things. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, this is, the, this is the amazing thing about joy in the Bible, is that it's not, it has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. If it's connected with the circumstances of life, it's connected with the difficult circumstances of life. Meaning, if you want to find joy, then look for the difficult parts of life. 
This is often, again, upside down Christmas. This is how it works. This is Hebrews chapter 2 about Jesus. Looking to Jesus. So look at Jesus as an example. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What he's saying is, the cross was hard for Jesus. Jesus was, was humiliated and brutally punished and murdered in front of people. Okay, it's actually happened. And Jesus was a human being as much as he was God incarnate. This was very difficult. But what he says is, look at life like Jesus did. Jesus saw joy there, like he saw it. And he knew that he, he would find joy by enduring and going through this process. It's very connected with hope. And look what it says at the end. Is that as, he, as he went through it, as he despised the shame, he didn't like what was happening. Okay? He didn't pretend it wasn't happening. But he, look, he remembered the joy that was set before him. And now where is he? At the right hand of God. If you remember from the Psalms, the right hand of God are, are, is the pleasure of God. God's pleasures forevermore. In other words, the difficult things of life, even real suffering, do not separate us from joy. If anything, they're a pathway to joy. This is what the non-Christian guy is saying in the quote. And what if you looked at it? What if you looked at it as a kind of test? Look at it as an opportunity every time. Every time something presents itself and it feels super difficult, like a trial. This is the way scripture talks about it. I don't know if I have it written down here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When I meet a trial, this is what I was wrestling with this week. When I meet a trial, I should say, yes, joy, which I don't usually do. And I remember thinking this because I was asking early in the week. Had a had a had a tough week and I was like, joy, I don't even think about joy. I gotta speak about joy in, in a couple days. Like I have nothing to say about joy. Father, will you teach me about joy? And I knew when I said it that things were not going to get easier. Because <laughs> what usually happens is, God, teach me about this. Okay, I'm going to teach you about it. Like a father teaches a son, which is through discipline. It's through, you know, it's through, I need to break open your heart. So everything works. I need to break open your heart again so you see it and you feel it and you hear it. It's not about this. It's not about telling people what the definition of joy is. So, so I sit there, and then things just get worse and worse. And I remember this. When you meet count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds because as it continues it is through the trial that I end up experiencing joy I end up drawing near to God where joy is joy is not in the absence of problems it's in going through problems with God it's by it's by going through problems to God so as I thought about that and I thought about living in a place like this and I thought real suffering you know like they're writing about real suffering you know like the people that are writing these things are suffering they're in prison they're, you know, they're, they're suffering. And I thought, what is the point here? I mean, is there suffering, God? And I, I, I felt him say, count it always as, count your trial as a trial. And count it as a test. Because who knows what I'm going to do with you, or with you, or with you. So maybe it's a test, because I'm going to put you in a place that is suffering. I'm going to bring you to a place where there is real suffering. And then you'll know, you'll have practiced. I met trials, maybe not as hard as this one. But I met trials before, I counted it joy. I drew closer to God. I felt his presence in the trial. I felt close to Jesus because Jesus lives in places like that. Just count it joy when you meet trials. And I was thinking about ambition. This might all seem kind of all over the place, but just stay with me. I was thinking about ambition because I used to struggle with ambition. I still do sometimes so much. 
And doing what I do as a job, it really rewards ambition, believe it or not. When I plant a church, it's like starting a business, starting something. You put in as much time as you can, you sacrifice everything else, you grow numbers, you grow money. It's ambition. And so actually, it's quite ugly, but I feel often in circles like that, that ambition slips into Christianity, and it's just called faithfulness or uh, sacrifice. But it's where it comes from. And this, is, this applies to anything. It's that my heart's ambition is for something, and it's not for God. And I can, I can pour God all over it. It has nothing to do with God. It's my ambition. I don't know what yours is, but my ambition is for this thing. My ambition is for a career or a certain quality of life or a certain relationship or just like anything. We all have things if we're honest enough. And I felt God saying, what if your ambition was hope? What if your ambition was so intangible that it was ridiculous to other people? My ambition is to be filled with joy. Well, what do you mean? Like, what about the other things in life? I don't know. What if you're poor? I don't know. But what if I was so filled with joy That'd be enough, because if you're that filled with joy, you won't care about other things, actually. Or if you're that filled with hope, other things will happen. I mean, if you're filled with hope and peace and joy and love, your life will look amazing. So what if you made it your ambition to say, I set everything else down in my life. And I'm to pursue you, God, and I want to pursue these things of hope. Because if you pursue joy then you're probably going to be led to places of difficulty, places of trial. And every time another trial comes in my life, I say, it's amazing. Because I have an opportunity for joy. Joy is not found easily in places where I'm comfortable and have no problems. And life is coasting. I'm going to miss out. Because life is not about that. Life is about a relationship with God. Life is about living in His presence. And living in His presence means hope, peace, joy, and love. The fruit of the Spirit, if you know. The fruit of being with God, what grows from that, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, these things, intangible things. When we think about giving gifts, what if that's what you thought life was about? Life was about things that people can't see. Life is about things that live inside of you that maybe sometimes people will feel it from you when you talk, but on the surface, maybe no one will know. But it's those things that make up following Jesus, that make up the kingdom, that make up, that make it up. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.